WFYI podcast brought to you by Bloomington, Indiana, an American college town offering food and drink, college sports, outdoor activities, live music, cool art, and good times daily. Everyone is welcome in Bloomington. More information at visitbloomington.com. We're going to take a trip right now. Like we always do about this time. This is a journey into sound. I'm Kyle Long, and you're listening to Cultural Manifesto. For the next two weeks on Cultural Manifesto, we'll listen back to some of my favorite interviews of 2022. We'll hear words and music from a wide variety of local and national artists, including Angelique Kijot, Emily Wells, Colin Blundstone of The Zombies, and many more. We'll start with an excerpt from my interview with the experimental pop music trio Sunlux. Sunlux composed the score to one of this year's most talked about films, Everything Everywhere, All at Once. The film's soundtrack features an all-star list of guest collaborators, including Randy Newman, David Byrne, and Indianapolis's own Hannah Benn. Sunlux told me that much of the soundtrack was recorded here in Indianapolis. Let's join my conversation with Sunlux as we discuss the group's connection to the city. Hi, this is Ian Chang, Rafiq Bhatia, Ryan Lott. Ian, Rafiq, and Ryan, thank you so much for taking time to be here today. We're going to talk about your upcoming show here in Indianapolis and your score for a remarkable new film called Everything, Everywhere, All at Once. And this is an incredible film, and you've created an equally incredible soundtrack, so I'm excited to share this music with our listeners. And I understand that Indianapolis played a role in the creation of this soundtrack. And I know our listeners will be very interested to hear more about that. So can you tell us what role Indianapolis played in the creation of this amazing score you created? Oh, thank you uh, so much for the compliments and for the invitation. Um, this is Ryan talking. Um, so, yeah, we, we actually we signed on to this project um, before the pandemic hit. Um, it was fall 2019 when Daniels reached out to us. They were fans of our music, um, both as a band and also individually. And we started uh, having a conversation about this insane project they were scheming. And um, they had just had they had a rough script in hand and, and they shared it with us. And it was totally bananas <laughs> and amazing. And, and twice and, as long. Yeah. And, and, <laughs> and twice as long as it, that it, as it wound up being. And um, we were super excited, but we also kind of like part of us wondered if it was really going to happen just because it was such an improbable film um, to imagine being made. But as it started to blossom into reality, and even before then, honestly, we started to generate sounds and start uh, sharing, um, you know, crazy little sonic ideas with Daniels. At the time I lived in Los Angeles um, and then um, Rafiq and Ian were in town um, at the beginning of March of uh, 2020. And we had an incredibly productive week of working on our records at the time and also the score. And we even had 
spent um, a whole day on set um, with the film, which was um, in the middle of, or toward the, actually it was toward the end of um, its uh, of production at that time. They just had two days left of shooting. Um, but it was right when things were getting super weird. And um, essentially what happened was right after that week, um, my wife, Jennifer, who grew up in Indianapolis, um, and my son had planned to make a trip to visit family in Indy. And I was like, yo, I don't feel like I want to wind up on the wrong side of the country as you guys right now, because things were starting to shut down and just get really strange. And, uh, you know, we said to ourselves, yo, this could last weeks, maybe months, you know? So I was like, let me just get a ticket on that plane. Um, so I threw my trash can Mac and my central hard drives into a Pelican case um, and stuffed it with like a couple shirts and got on the plane to Indianapolis and we didn't take the return flight. <laughs> and then what proceeded to happen was we um, uh, kept on working on the score um, remotely and kept delaying our, you know, plans to return to Los Angeles. And uh, the majority of the score was made in um, a rented first, uh, uh, actually a donated um, bedroom in a small empty house in Indianapolis <laughs> on Westfield. And then right down the street, eventually uh, in a, a little rented um, office in Broad Ripple. That's amazing. And, you know, subsequent to the uh, creation of the album, I know you've been rehearsing for your tour recently. And from what I understand, Rafiq and Ian, you've been here in Indianapolis as well, uh, living and, and working for, for a bit. Is that correct? And anything you want to share about your experiences here? Yeah, that's correct. Um, for rehearsals for this tour, we uh, decided to, rather than like go to like a rehearsal space uh, or something like that, we decided to book an Airbnb uh, in Broad Ripple. Uh, so close to Ryan, so he, you know, uh, he can be close to family, and it's it was a space where we were able, Rafiq and I were able to kind of like both like sleep and live there. But then in the basement, we set up like a nice like little rehearsal setup for us. Um, and thankfully, like the neighbors never said anything because uh, it was an old building with like foundations that were like you couldn't really hear anything actually from the outside while we were playing, which is amazing. And um, yeah, it was it was fun because it really was very freeing to be able to just like walk downstairs at any moment and be at our instruments and our stations. Um, and it, it all there's an element of it that felt very kind of like I was like back in like high school or something like, uh, you know, playing in like a, a friend's like basement, you know, playing music. And um, that was really nice, too, because it, it just felt like a very comfortable situation and yeah we really enjoyed our time in Indy and we you know a lot of uh, a lot of Sunlux creations have happened um on the soil of Indianapolis at this point <laughs> <laughs> yeah. 
That's great. And one final question. Think, you know, oh, yeah. you said that, it's actually funny you say that. Our, our biggest like Sunlug song is called Easy. Mm-hmm. And um, I actually started writing that song in Indianapolis in um, my wife's childhood bedroom. <laughs> and it's like... It, oh, I've been there. Yeah, yeah occasionally um, I have this r- r- like memory that, that actually that song was like kind of like you know, also it started there. Easy. Easy. Pull out your heart to me. From the soundtrack of everything, everywhere, all at once, this is Sunlux with This Is A Life, featuring David Byrne and Mitski. That was Sun Lux with This Is A Life, featuring David Byrne and Mitski. This week on Cultural Manifesto, 
we're looking back at some of my favorite interviews from 2022. Up next, we'll listen to an excerpt of my interview with the Grammy-winning vocalist Falu. She performed in Indianapolis in September. Falu's music combines North Indian classical music with influences of pop, rock, and folk music. She calls this style indie Hindi. During my conversation with Falu, we discussed our shared love for the iconic Bollywood film composer R. D. Berman. Falu covered Berman's psychedelic classic "Dum Maro Dum" on her self-titled 2007 album. We'll hear that track in a moment. But first, let's hear an excerpt from my conversation with Falu. In Falu, you coined a phrase to describe the music you were making in the United States during the、uh, early 2000s.、Uh, you coined the phrase "indie Hindi," right? Yes. <laughs> tell me, tell me what that means to you. So, obviously, everything that I've learned—folk, Indian classical, semi-classical. They are. That's all old, right? It's、mm-hmm. passed on. It's at least three thousand years old. And when you bring those essences, the fluidity of that culture into America, and the instrumentation is not necessarily Indian. It is a bass. It is a a, a keyboard. It's a piano. It's a guitar. The the harmonies that are created in those instruments. When you are singing your phrases, first of all, that's a very unique sound, right? And you're capturing that nuance with composition based in a in a very old raga and English lyrics on top of it. So here we are taking the roots of Indian raga with English lyrics, but not so much that it hurts these these traditions, but actually mixes it very gently without.、Um, Affecting the uniqueness of both, and then coloring it with American instrumentation, sometimes Indian tabla as well, and you know sometimes Indian sarangi.、Uh, but the culmination and the product of proportionality of bringing these three things together, or four, and that became, I think, a very popular sound、uh, in 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 this area where I was trying to flourish, Indian Hindi. So that's Indian Hindi, which is age-old ancient culture coming into the neck, into the modern phase, but keep drawing from both, but keeping the originality. Falu, you released, I think, your debut solo album in 2007. Is that correct? Yes. Yeah, and I love this album. And there's a track on that album in particular that I wanted to ask you about. You do a, an extraordinary version of one of my all-time favorite pieces of music, written by one of my all-time musical heroes,、uh, "Dum Maro Dum" by R. D. Berman. You do a、oh. fantastic version of this song. And you know, we're talking about. Incorporating all these stylistic、uh, influences into one's music, he was truly a master of that. Tell me about your、uh, 
version of this song and if uh, R.D. Berman's music has been an influence on you? So, you know, I have never said this in any interview, but I will tell you. My R.D. Berman was a very, uh, <laughs> uh, every weekend visitor wow. in my grandma's and my uncle's house. Wow. So when he, every weekend, every Saturday night or Friday night, he, Kishore Kumar, mm. my uncle Praveen, and me as a little child, I was three, four, five wow. years old, just wandering there. It's, you know how we have parties and people come over and we're having drinks and dinner. Sure. Every weekend, R.D. Berman came to my grandfather's house where I was there too. And they just created music. Anand Bakshi, the writer, mm. the lyricist. Yeah. So he, the way I remember these scenes precisely in my mind where they would have a subject, a theme to work on. And uh, I don't know if Dhammarudam was written like that, but I know one, a couple of songs that they wrote in front of me. Mm. I was three years old, mm. right? And they would say, the theme is this. And Anand Bakshi had a, he had, he would, uh, let me show you the video. He, he would do this. Anand Bakshi would do this, like that, mm. with a handkerchief. Okay. And in two minutes, he would write out lyrics. And R.D. Berman would then sometimes understand the language and sometimes he would say, what does, what does Nashaman mean? Is that a, is that a, is that a village or is that a city? What is this? And he might ask him a couple of lyrical questions and then they would, they would clarify and R.D. Berman would write there in that harmonium, in that room with my uncle and Kishore Kumar, compose. And that song became the Marudam. Wow. Or whichever. Yeah. So I grew up with these people. I, I, I can't tell you how blessed I am. I grew up with them having fun every weekend in my house. I'm speechless. That's unbelievable. <laughs> and I've never shared the story. I don't know why, because nobody asked me. Yeah. You know, sometimes like experiences like this happen, but you don't really share it because no one really asked me. Mm. But my grow, my entire upbringing was with the blessings of R.D. Berman, Anand Bakshi, um, Shakti Samant, the filmmaker, Amar Prem, um, or more. And, and of course, Ustad Sultan Khan. So how blessed can any child be who is around the best of the bests? Hmm. Wow. You know what? I think what spoke to me about his music was his ability to interpret you know, Western music styles, whether it was psychedelic rock like in Dammaro Dam or you know, funk music, disco music, Latin music, whatever the case may be. Um, how, how do you kind of... What you, yeah, tell me about his music and like what it means to you in, in India. Yeah, he was a genius. Yeah. He was so. There is a movie called Satte Pe Sata, mm -hmm. and in that mm -hmm. there's a song where is it Seven Brides for Seven Brothers? Like something like that. Yeah, yeah. That type of vocal effect. So he made singers gargle on the mic. Yeah. Like he, they, the, all the singers were, ah, they were gargling with water. And he recorded that sound. I mean, this man was a walking genius. The way he would listen to the uh, any object that's not even musical, he would incorporate a beer bottle in, in a song. He would incorporate gargling into music. Who 
What kind of brilliance is that? Yeah, incredible. It's incredible. And I saw that recording. Satya Bisatta, the seven boys. Yeah, the seven yeah. brothers. It, I was in that studio in that recording when that gargling was happening. It's a remake of a famous American musical, right? Seven Brides for Seven Brothers. Do you know about that? An old Hollywood movie. Yeah, I was just going to throw that out there for our listeners that may have that as a frame of reference. Oh, really? Yeah. I didn't know that. Thank I you believe for sharing so. that. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. yeah, well, thank you for sharing that story about R.D. Berman. I, like I said, I was obsessed with him for a long time and tried to I, track down all his albums and cassettes. And yeah, I am him. too. And yeah. I will show you some old photographs when I see you. Oh, please. Of yes. him, him having a cigarette and smoking and, you know, doing all this in uh, having drinks in my house with my uncle. I'll show you all the pictures. Please. Yeah. <laughs> This is Falu with Dumb Morrow Dumb.
That was Falu with Dumb Morrow Dumb. Cultural Manifesto will return after this short break. I'm Kyle Long, and you're listening to Cultural Manifesto. On this week's show, we're listening back to some of my favorite interviews of 2022. Up next, we'll listen to an excerpt of my conversation with the Indianapolis rock band Karate, Guns, and Tanning. Their 2021 album, Concrete Beach, has earned an international cult following among fans of psychedelic shoegaze music. Let's hear an excerpt of my conversation with Valerie Green and Joy Caroline Mills of Karate, Guns, and Tanning. Uh, I'm Valerie Green, and I play bass and sing, and I play some synths and random kind of keyboard stuff. My name is Joy Caroline Mills, and I play lead guitar, and I also do some synth stuff and some backup vocals for Valerie as well. And as we get started, I want to ask about the band's name, which is a very distinct name. And I think maybe this is a question for you, Valerie. This name relates to uh, the town in Indiana where you spent your formative years, right? Tell us about the name of this band. Yeah, so the name comes from a, um, a former strip mall in Plainfield, Indiana, on the west side of Indianapolis where I grew up. And if you can guess what was in this strip mall, there was a karate studio, a tanning salon, and a gun store. So karate, guns, tanning, it was just a giant sign that advertised those three um, Midwest uh, necessities, I guess. So (laughs) our former engineer, he kind of had always thought it would make a cool band name. And so when we were putting the band together, we thought that would be appropriate as kind of a homage to where we grew up in suburban Midwest. And also we thought it would be great for SEO. Hmm. (laughs) No one's going to have that name. You know, I grew up around the same area you did in Hendricks County, just outside of uh, Indianapolis. And it was kind of a cultural void when I was there as a kid. How did that impact um, your artistic uh, imagination? (laughs) Well, I think like maybe a lot of people have that story that grow up in in those kind of areas, which most of the country is like you, there's not much else to do, you know, so playing music, I was in every single band I could possibly be in. Um, started on French horn and then moved to electric bass and um, studied up, upright bass all through high school. So I played in symphonic band, um, jazz band, all of that. So by the end of my high school career, most of my classes were music. And it just was something that um, you had to kind of make your own fun and not a lot of distractions and plain field Indiana. So, <laughs> yeah, I think it probably helped. You had to make your own entertainment. And Joy, tell us about where you grew up and kind of your introduction to uh, performing music. Yeah, so similar kind of to Valerie, grew up in the Midwestern suburbs. Uh, We moved here from Hawaii. I'm a Navy kid. So I grew up in McCordsville area, Fishers area. And um, so my music journey, I really started young. Um, We moved here from Hawaii and I just really got into country music. I don't know. I just, I was fascinated by guitar and I was just like, that's so cool that there's an instrument that can say so much um, and it's so versatile. So I just jumped in and started playing it. And then um, this one found me a few years ago and uh, I really like sonically what she's doing and her vision. So that's been really fun to play with her. 
Enjoy and Valerie, Karate Guns and Tanning, have a f- somewhat new album out titled Concrete Beach. It came out last year in March, I believe. This is an extraordinary record. It's really sonically powerful. You know, when you listen to it, it's, there are so many musical textures kind of swirling around. And I wanted to ask you about kind of the musical influences you were bringing into this project. You know, when I listened to this, I heard industrial music, uh, 60s psychedelic rock, shoegaze music from the 90s. And there's even, you know, more conventional pop songs and pop structures to the music. Tell us a little bit about the influences you were bringing into this project and kind of what you wanted to say with this record. Yeah, it's. uh, I'll tell you about the the new record later on, too, that kind of ties into all of that. But, yeah, I think that... um, somehow all all of us in this band have very different influences and i think that's kind of the magic of it for me is that all of these different influences kind of mix together and mash together and somehow they have formed like this sound you know this sound that is karate guns and tanning but for me i i grew up i kind of went through every phase you could go through like obviously i was studying classical music but i was very interested in um, like the grunge scene, like Nirvana, when when that came around, I was pretty young. Uh, but from that, I went to like harder metal and got into Metallica. And I played with some some guys in high school, and we would just like drill on these Metallica riffs. So that was kind of my love of metal and heavy music came from that. And then I got into techno and the rave scene that was like exploding around Indianapolis when I was like a little out of high school. Um, and then I got into jam band and like a lot of um, like funk and got into the organ, Hammond B3. So like my my musical history is just all over the place. And I loved playing with Daniel. He's got elements of stuff that I love, like very much funk and also has like some jazz kind of tendencies, but also very powerful um, drummer as well. And then Joy brings this kind of pop uh, sensibility to the project. And But she also is like dived into shoegaze and all of these other she's kind of like she's a little younger than me so she's um also discovered some of the stuff that i feel like i get to like kind of hey check this out check this out for my like crazy history Mm -hmm. but yeah i think everyone brings like such a their own flavor and it somehow works yeah, Joe, the guitar sounds on the record are really imaginative and powerful. Sometimes even within the same song, you're doing so many different things. It's just you add so much to this album. Tell us a little about your approach to uh, the guitar and, and performing for this band. That's so nice. Thank you, first of, of all. Uh, <laughs> second of all, I bring a pop sensibility because I'm a firm believer that pop music popular music doesn't always have the same connotation as bad music it's popular for a reason so on any track that i'm playing on for guitar i kind of view it as am i going to add another emotional layer to this or am i going to take away from the sonic composition that's already there so when i'm writing for kgt i really uh a lot of the pop influence comes in because i'm like you know what can i add here that will be a little bit more interesting and then just the tones that i that I pick, I'm kind of like an audiophile. So it's been kind of 10 to 15 years of picking out the right tones and pedals. And I'm really proud of that. So just kind of, thank you for noticing that too. (laughs) So just kind of picking out sounds, I can just kind of hear in my head what I want it to sound like with this music. So like she said, kind of our flavors just kind of work together and I can bring in the pop sensibilities. This is Karate, Guns, and Tanning with fire.
That was Karate Guns and Tanning with Fire. On this week's show, we're listening back to some of my favorite interviews of 2022. Up next, we'll hear an excerpt of my conversation with Colin Blundstone of the legendary British rock band The Zombies. Blundstone and The Zombies toured across the Midwest United States during the summer of 2022. And I asked Blundstone about the Zombies' early tours in the United States. And we're speaking as the Zombies are in preparation to begin a North American tour this year. And I was curious if touring in America is still meaningful for you. I know you first came here in 1964. You'd grown up playing American music, listening to Chuck Berry, Little Richard, Elvis, and I'm sure that first tour here was very meaningful for you. Is it still meaningful for you to tour and perform in the U.S.? Well, absolutely. I think on two levels, really. One, you've just mentioned that so much of contemporary music has started in America, beginning with the blues, rhythm and blues, rock and roll, jazz. They're all, it's all American music, and that's uh, that's why all musicians from the UK want to play in America because so much of what we listen to originated in America. Um, on another level, I think that in some ways, I, I think that music means more to American audiences than it does to a lot of uh, to audiences in a lot of other countries. Yeah. Americans really appreciate music and they're very knowledgeable and uh, and just great audiences to, to appreciative audiences to play to. So I, I look to, forward to going to America on, on lots of levels, but certainly there there are two of them. And as you rightly said, we first came to America on Christmas 1964. So we now have many friends in America. We've been coming for seventy something years, and I feel really at home in America. Um, I think the two countries are much more similar now than they were in 1964. I think that our, um, our lifestyles were, were quite different in 64 in many ways. But now I, I really don't notice the difference so much coming from the UK to America, just that you have more appreciative audiences. <laughs> <laughs> the way you tour now is much different than the way the zombies were touring in the mid-1960s. You know, now you're a headline act, uh, you're the main feature. Uh, in the early days of the groups touring in the United States, you were p playing on these package shows, these reviews, which would often have maybe 10 to 12 other acts playing on the same bill. What was it like being part of these package tours? And, you know, I, from what I understand, you were in a van with the other artists, you know, uh, touring across the country. You played with the Dick Clark Caravan of Stars and you were all... Uh, in a bit in a van traveling together what was that experience like well in, i mean in some ways it was it was really good there was a great camaraderie um backstage and when when we were traveling i think if anything there were more acts than you just mentioned mm. you know there were 15 or 16 acts but it was quite tough because we we were we were on a bus but there were no facilities on the bus at all and to be absolutely honest because some of the poor guys lower down on the bill weren't being paid very much. We couldn't stay in hotels every night. Uh, we only stayed every second night. So it meant that on alternate nights, we would 
drive through the night just sitting on this pretty uncomfortable uh, bus. We might say a coach in this country. Um, So it it did get pretty exhausting towards the end. I think I, in the four or six weeks, I think we were on tour, I think I lost about a stone while we were, uh, that's 14 pounds, while we were on tour. So the travelling was pretty tough, especially because, we didn't stay in hotels every night, but otherwise it, it was pretty good fun. I mean, we got to know these uh, other acts really well. It does sound grueling to live out of a van, especially when you were traveling with 20 or 30 other people, you know, crowded into uh, the same van. But uh, some of those people that you were touring with in the 1960s were the greatest legends in American rhythm and blues music. And as someone who'd grown up listening to that music, that must have been incredibly meaningful for you to have that time living and working with these artists and to, you know, share this uh, experience with them. What did that mean to you personally as a, you were a teenager at the time, really? Yeah. What did that mean to you? I was a teenager. Yeah. Well, it was absolutely fantastic. I mean, uh, when we first came over, we played Murray the K's uh, Christmas show at the Brooklyn Fox and uh, the the people on there, Dion Warwick, the Shirelles, the Shangri-Las, um, again, there were 14 or 15 acts, and it, it was incredible. And then when we did the Dick Clark Caravan of Stars, one of the things I remember is that um, as we got on the bus in the first night, we drove through the night, and after about half an hour, all this gospel music started up in, in the back of the bus, which is where I was. I was right in the middle of them. And... Uh, it was absolutely beautiful. And after a couple of nights, the guys on the bus turned to particularly Rod and I from the zombies and said, OK, you know, you've listened to us sing. Now it's your turn. And boy, that was a bit of a worrying moment. And we had to stand up and sing for them. I, I think we sang If I Fell, because Rod and I did a pretty good version of that. Uh, you know, the the two-part harmony of mm. If I Fell. And it, I have to say, it went down very well. And we were accepted after that. That was our, um, that was our test, you know, to, uh, to be accepted. Pretty yeah. scary, but we got through it. Yeah. It seems like you had some exciting adventures on the road in America. I read a story that you sort of barnstormed Graceland looking for Elvis while you were in Memphis. Is that true, that the band showed up at <laughs> the, the home of Elvis? <laughs> It's absolutely true. We were doing an interview with a a local DJ in Memphis. And at the end of the interview, he said to us, as if it was like, you know, a mutual friend that lived around the corner. He said, you know, do you fancy going around to see Elvis? And we we looked at one another in astonishment and said, well, yeah, haven't got much on at the moment. Yeah, okay. well, well, let's go. So we went around there. There was no security at all. I don't know if we were just lucky, but there wasn't. We just walked up the uh, up the drive and knocked on the front door. And we never quite worked out if it was his father or his uncle came to the door. And he was absolutely charming. And, but Elvis was away. In, he was filming in Hawaii. Mm. And he said to us, you know, Elvis would be really disappointed he missed you. And we thought he was just being really nice. But later on, we were told by someone who appeared to know everything about Elvis that Elvis actually had our records on his on his jukebox mm. so he did know who we were and uh, you know it would have been very interesting if we had met him as it was 
his father or his uncle said to us, well, listen, just have a look around, make yourselves at home. And that's what we did. Um, but there, we didn't actually meet Elvis, I'm afraid to say. But it was a real experience. And, and we've been back there since mm. and um, told that story to all the people. It's very, very different now. Mm. But there's actually a radio station on the grounds. And we told that story of the first time we came to Graceland um, from their own radio station. And I, th- I think they were pretty amused by it as well. We just heard an excerpt of my 2022 conversation with Colin Blundstone of The Zombies. Let's listen to a track from The Zombies' classic 1968 album, Odyssey and Oracle. We'll hear This Will Be Our Year. is gone. This will be our year. Took a long time to come. And I won't forget the way you helped me up when I was done. And I won't forget the way you said, darling, I love you. You gave me faith to go on. Now we're there and we've only just begun. This will be our year. Took a long time to come. The Zombies with This Will Be Our Year. On this week's show, we're listening back to some of my favorite interviews of 2022. Up next, we'll hear an excerpt from my interview with Daryl Black Eagle Jameson of Medicine Singers, a unique collaboration between the Rhode Island-based Native American powwow group Eastern Medicine Singers and the psychedelic Israeli punk rock guitarist Jonathan Gatt. Medicine Singers issued their debut album in 2022 on the Indianapolis-based label Joyful Noise Recordings. I asked Jameson if he was concerned that the group's radical blend of traditional and electronic sounds would draw criticism from music purists. Yeah, hey, there'll be some out there that... uh 
want to take shots and everything, but am I going to listen to them? No. How do you feel about putting this record out? I mean, it seems like you're very proud of the work you've done. Are you excited for the release of this album and for people to experience this unique sound you all have created? Yeah, I am. I'm proud of it. I, you know, I sat back and listened to it again on SoundCloud uh, last night. And I'm like, you know, this is, this is really a cool album. And the thing is, is that we have, we have a, a Western, Western styled, um, guy in there from the uh from the planes that did music and uh his contribution was just as great as as um as us you know as far as the song that he did and everything and uh you know i don't think that people are going to be criticizing it as much as one would think because you got different nations in there doing stuff you know we have a we have a brother on my drum that he he lived on Pine Ridge. He speaks both Wampanoag and he speaks, you know, Lakota. Mm. And he's also in there, you know. So this is this album's really a flash of different culture, you know. Yeah, Yanatun told me there's a South American uh, indigenous yeah. vocalist as well from northern Brazil. Yeah. Yeah, and he does an excellent job, yeah. you know. So, yeah. And that's why we said it's medicine. You know, it's a medicine singers. Yeah. You know, because it really is. It's like all these, where else can you get up to different natives coming together and singing on an album? You know, I mean, it's just unheard of. You know, it's either one style or the other. But now you got, you know, east, south, you know, southeast, the deep southeast. And you got, you know, west. And we're all singing together and stuff and doing something together. So, I mean, it's really... You know, I don't think it's going to take as much criticism as people think. You know, there's there's a lot of of native rappers out there people yeah. don't like. There's a lot of, you know, I mean, I know some guys out there that are, are friends of mine that do native rap um, in Canada and here, right here in, in in Rhode Island, and people give them, you know, some people criticize them, but they're still famous. <laughs> you know, they're still doing good. They're selling records. That desire to criticize like Native American rappers and projects like this, what, what do you think that says about how people in North America perceive Native American indigenous people? It's like every other culture can change their culture with the times and incorporate different influences. But people, for some reason, have trouble seeing Native American culture adapt to uh, changes in style and music. And what do you think that says about the perception of Native Americans? in North America. Yeah, I think that, that that's why we need to do this project. Yeah. <laughs> that's because people need to see that everything's not black and white, mm. you know. Every Indian doesn't look the same. I'm not going to look the same as a Lakota. Yeah. And an Indian from Manitoba is not going to look the same as me as well as a, a you know, a, a, a Inu. It's not going to look the same. And they all have different styles of singing. Look, they have throat singing. Mm. I don't know anything about throat singing, but that's this. That's their tradition and their style who am i to criticize it you know and who is somebody who doesn't even know my language to criticize what i'm doing <laughs> you know and that's kind of the way i look at it i mean and and you know that's why people like us need to come out and show the world that you know first of all my whole thing was to show people that 
our Indian culture is is just as good as equal to the 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 regular mainstream, you know, white culture that's out there. The two can exist together. They can work together, you know, and they can blend together. It's uh, experimental art. That's what it is. Yeah, you know? yeah. And we're gonna, you know, that's what we want to do. We're gonna show the world experimental art from the Eastern Algonquin side of the world and hope they like it. We just heard an excerpt from my conversation with Daryl Black Eagle Jameson of Medicine Singers. And we'll end this week's show with a track from their debut album, a stunning version of Link Ray's classic guitar instrumental, Rumble. Thanks for tuning in for this look back at some of my favorite interviews from 2022. Check out the Cultural Manifesto podcast on Spotify and Apple Music to hear the full episodes. I'm Kyle Long, and you've been listening to Cultural Manifesto.